Welcome back, everyone. This is Austin Roberts. Here on the Ecosiv Podcast, we engage leading thinkers in conversations about the kinds of transformations required to create a more sustainable, peaceful, and just world. We bring you today's episode in partnership with One Project, which is a nonprofit initiative working globally with communities to design, implement, and scale new forms of governance and economics that are equitable, ecological, and effective. The focus of this episode, along with several others to follow over the coming months, is to elevate themes of the recent book, The New Possible, through a series of dialogues on global systems change. For more information about The One Project and The New Possible book, please check out the links in the show notes for this episode. In the conversation that follows, Andrew Schwartz talks with Natalie Foster from the Economic Security Project about shifting the economy to value work rather than wealth and reframing labor for an ecological civilization. And now, here's Andrew and Natalie. Welcome to another episode of the EcoCiv podcast. I'm Andrew Schwartz, co-founder and vice president of EcoCiv, and it is a privilege to have Natalie Foster with me today. Natalie is co-chair and co-founder of the Economic Security Project, uh, a network to support exploration and, and experimentation of a guaranteed income, uh, which also is working to rein in the unprecedented concentration of corporate power. So no minor task. Uh, she is also senior fellow at the Aspen Institute's work, uh, Future of Work Initiative, uh, which advocates for comprehensive approaches to building a more inclusive economy. Um, so both of those things are things we hope to talk about today. She is author of uh, chapter 14. I'm sure this is the most famous thing she's known for being author of chapter 14 in the new possible, um, which is, a uh, uh, one of the sort of inspirations for, for this podcast series. Um, today, we're going to be talking about reframing work for the long-term well-being of people on the planet um, and basically anything else Natalie wants to talk about. So thanks for, jo- thanks for joining me. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. You know, let's, um, let's just dive into uh, to the questions of value and worth. I noticed in your chapter, uh, you argue that, quote, Work is not worth. And I absolutely love that line. Um, could you say a little bit more about this tendency to equate work with worth and the problem uh, with such thinking? What are the implications? Yeah, you know, I think 40 years of neoliberal capitalism have shown us a couple of key things, one of which is that, you know, trickle down economics does not create thriving, equitable societies. And two is as we have become a low wage nation, as most of the jobs in America have become service sector jobs, which are very precarious, which are low wage, it has become even more clear that work never equated to worth, but work really doesn't equate to worth now when worth is, is uh, when you know so much of the frontline workers in today's world are paid at the very bottom of the wage scale or are in very precarious and are in very precarious work situations. Um, And yet they were the frontline workers. They were the people keeping, you know, the world moving during a pandemic and were putting their lives at risk to show up to bag groceries at a supermarket and to sweep floors at a hospital, um, just to name one of the many, many types of frontline uh, work, you know, that was happening um, that was paid very little uh, with such high risk. So that was work we very much valued and didn't 
show it through the paycheck, uh, just reminding us how deeply broken that connection between work and worth are. And the challenge, of course, is that if you have told generations of people that your worth is through your work, then there are deeply um, there are deeply held beliefs, even among those for whom the economy is not working, that it is their fault. There are deeply held beliefs among people at the top uh, of the income ladder who believe poverty is a moral failing, as opposed to a symptom of a structure that is not working and is systemically excluding uh, large numbers of people. And if we believe it's individual's fault, then we believe it's an individual problem to solve, not a structural problem to solve. And um, I think that is where, again, 40 years of neoliberalism has shown us uh, that it, it must be a structural shift uh, in order to make you know a, an economy that works for everyone. Absolutely. So one of the structural shifts I know you've been working on is this uh, guaranteed income. Um, and I think sometimes when the notion of a guaranteed income comes into public discourse, you get critics arguing exactly like you just said, this it's the individual problem, not a structural problem. And effectively, it's unethical to steal from the rich and give to the poor, and that if people want to succeed in our current system, they just need to work harder. Um, so what do you say to those sorts of concerns, uh, those criticisms? Um, why a guaranteed income and how is this actually a solution to economic inequality? Yeah. Well, my journey uh, has been through the future of work. And I got very interested in what <laughs> we, for a very long period of time, built all of our social safety net and frankly, our social contract through a very specific type of employment, which has been fissured over the course of 40 years of neoliberalism, as work has become more and more service sector, more and more fissured and gig, um, gigified, if you will, uh, as opposed to, you know, the jobs that we were actually um, uh, negotiating around, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, where, you know, you would have a job for 50 years, there would be a pension at the end of it, all of your health care, all of your um, tax benefits, all of your social safety net, you know, your, your retirement, that would all flow through your employer. Uh, and that was a like a, a negotiated position that unions, employers, and the government had after a very bloody period in American history where we were sort of saying, this is how we're going to do it. Employers are going to take responsibility. Government is going to make sure that happens. And from that sort of Treaty of Detroit contract to now, we have just seen an erosion and a fissuring and an end run around um, that, that contract. So we live in a world where work is precarious. It pays uh, very little, you know, the, the largest source of employment is is in the service sector. And so um, what does, what should the social contract look like? Because it shouldn't look like this, where Americans have to work two to three jobs to put money on the table just to make ends meet somewhere, you know, going to the emergency room could bankrupt any family. Like, that's not it. So what should it look like? And got interested in a lot of the solutions around you know, non-traditional types of work, like this idea of portable benefits, right? That we should have benefits uh, as workers that move with us through our work life, regardless of who our employer is. But even that felt insufficient because at the end of the day, I believe there are just things that need to be guaranteed to people in order for the economy and for families to have the resilience 
needed to make it through chaotic times. And an income floor seems like one of the simplest things that we could guarantee. I think it sits alongside a guarantee of healthcare, a guarantee of housing, a guarantee of excellent public education. Those are all things we should have in an economic bill of rights um, someday to sort of riff on Derek Hamilton's work, who is situated at the new school and his thinking around what an economic bill of rights um, would look like. But an income floor is the type of thing we could guarantee tomorrow. And in fact, we're starting to see that. So one of the big shifts is um, inside uh, the American Rescue Plan that was passed earlier in 2021 um, by Joe Biden and Congress, and is now being debated right now here at the end of 2021 inside of a big reconciliation package and a Build Back Better agenda, um, is the child tax credit. And what's noteworthy about the child tax credit is that it sounds like pretty vanilla tax credit, you know, that just everybody can get behind. But in fact, it is an income floor for parents with children. It's paid out monthly. It comes through the IRS. There is no application you have to fill out. It's just debited directly into your account each month, nearly $300, up to $300 per kid per month with no strings attached. Parents are using that money to raise their families as they see fit. They can count on it no matter what happens. If their hours are cut back, if they lose their job, if they have to quit their job because it no longer pencils out to pay for very expensive childcare and keep their minimum wage job, if any of that happens, the child tax credit still comes in the door. So it sits alongside wages and creates a resilience among families that allow them to take care of themselves in the way they see fit. And so I think that is really a helpful like visualization of what an income floor could look like um, in America. That's cool. And it's great to, to know that that's something that's sort of already in the works, which I think is inspiring. It's You had mentioned... Um, the sort of need for resiliency. And I think something that we've seen definitely with COVID is that it's revealed so much of the insecurity um, of our sort of social contract for, for workers. Can you say a little bit about what you've seen um, in light of COVID the last couple of years now um, and how this sort of pandemic has, has shed light on the inadequacies of our, our economic structure and in the way that we uh, in, in body working? Yeah. I mean, what's so crazy about the last two years is it's just laid bare how deeply intertwined we are. That if, if one of us is not doing well, all of us are not doing well. And that is just never more true than with a virus that is, you know, spread by proximity. Uh, we, we are able to stay safe by, you know, sort of being able to make decisions for our own families and our own um, selves and without, so, so our intertwiningness is so clear um, as is our need for agency and our need for uh, the ability to, you know, stay home and work from behind zoom or stay home and take care of my kid when they're sick and not go to work uh, in this period when, you know, we really need to not be spreading germs. So I just think it's, it's really um, made it clear. And as it has sort of this con this um, contrast between our essential workers, as we talked about earlier, uh, and how they're actually compensated, and um, how we understand that the essential workers were so important to keeping things going, and yet are um, so often make 
the the lowest wages, have the most precarious work, have very little support. Um, and, and that if people lose their jobs in a moment of great economic upheaval, they also lose their health care. That that's still the experience right. for so many families in the midst of a pandemic. Um, it's brittle. It's brittle and it's fragile. And it needs to be thick and resilient and supported. And one of the ways economically we can do that is through guaranteeing income no matter what happens in the labor market or with the pandemic or in a climate uh, catastrophe. You know, I live in California and uh, we are right now in the midst of fire season. That means at any moment, we would have to grab our bags and head out because a fire could sweep through the incredibly dry ecosystem that California, you know, lives in. And um, there will be more crises. We need to build in a way that allows people to weather those crises. And that was not what, you know, the last 40 years of capitalism has brought us. And it never promised us that either, by the way. It promised us efficiency and lower prices, but not mm. resilience. Mm. And that's what we need to build for. Absolutely. So, so let's dream together then. Let's imagine our future. Let's say that we've built this, uh, this world, right? So let's, and maybe even in by the year 2030, I'd, I'd love to see that, right? You know, less than a decade away. And let's imagine that all of America has adopted a guaranteed income policy and income floor, and that we've basically reoriented our entire economy around being instead of doing. Uh, we've effectively achieved a sustainable and equitable society. What does it look like? Uh, right? What, what is employment like? What, how are businesses structured? How are goods and services exchanged? Like what, what would this world look like? What are some of its features? All right. I'm going to riff, but I want you to as well, Andrew. Okay. So, you know, one of the Sounds things good. we would see is an explosion in um, entrepreneurship, people starting businesses, uh, in their own homes that sort of makes sense for their family life. Um, people, you know, whether they're uh, braiding hair in the living room or whether they're, you know, selling, uh, I, I just purchased a uh, handmade baby Yoda hat with these cute green ears off Etsy. And there's, there's a woman in Ohio who makes baby Yoda hats. That's so cool. <laughs> I love that world. I want I'll one to look that, that up. <laughs> <laughs> the woman in Ohio making baby Yoda hats with the current system, you know, has no clarity on who will be buying baby Yoda hats, has no contributions into her social security account, has no support for healthcare uh, outside of what, you know, we passed a decade ago with Obamacare, where she can purchase healthcare off the exchange. There's no support for, but the tax code is not built for an independent contractor like that. All of that would change, right? All of that would change if we were to say, Let's guarantee a standard of living no matter how you work in America. And I am convinced that work is not people, people will work, people will continue to work. They're going to do it in ways that are future proof, they're going to do it in ways that are inspiring to them because they have the option to do that. And that will unleash so much creativity. Um, in entrepreneurship that I, I would love to see. So that's one of the threads I have. What do you see in that world where there's a set of guarantees? 
I love that. I mean, to imagine that would be so much fun. The creativity that would emerge from uh, the security that comes with, uh, you know, a, a guaranteed income where people didn't have to um, get up in the morning, fight through traffic in order to, uh, to, to work their bums off in order to, uh, to put money in somebody else's pocket. You know, that, that's not fulfilling. That's not inspiring and encouraging. But to be able to do something meaningful um, that contributes to value in, in the sort of, that makes them feel good. Um, I think that's, I think that's important. Actually, that's something I want to talk about. You know, so much of our uh, economic success is measured by metrics like GDP or even employment rates. Um, say, how is our economy doing? Well, how many people are unemployed? Oh, unemployment rates, you know, okay, good. Economy is doing good. We have more people have jobs. Um, but I think many people have been advocating for alternative measures uh, like well-being that can quantitatively capture qualitative matters. And I'm wondering what it would look like, for example, to measure meaningful work as opposed to simply employment status. And could a guaranteed income help us um, move in that direction? Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. I think, um, you know, you manage to what you measure. And if, mm-hmm. if what we are measuring is, you know, our levels of consumption then, um, then we're failing. And if we're simply looking at, you know, our productivity and that's it, then we're failing. If, uh, you know, even something as simple as like, what is the percentage of low wage work in any given state is an idea here in California. I've heard floated that makes a lot of sense. It is currently X percent. We would like to see it go to Y percent as we have moved jobs higher in the wage bracket have we, as we have moved jobs into higher quality jobs, right? I think in the beginning of uh, the conversation about the future, it was all about quantity. You know, where will we lose jobs? What types of jobs will we lose? And it's actually a question of quality because we know that very few jobs are entirely going to be eliminated. They will be augmented by um, technology and automation that is happening now, uh, or they will be jobs that are completely automation proof, like caregiving jobs. But if they aren't quality jobs, right, caregiving is slated to be the largest occupation by 2040 as we move into a boom of aging Americans, a boom of, you know, young children, uh, there's disabled people that need care throughout the course of their life. And if that job continues to be incredibly low paid, happening in the margins without the protections of our existing, you know, employment system, without any pension or 401k or social security contributions even that are set aside, if those if that work continues to be precarious, then we'll be in a position where we have a large number of them and in very low quality jobs. So really I think it's about the the type of of you know quality uh, that we have as well. The other thing that strikes me is I'd love to figure out a way to measure, you know, not just the bread, but also the roses. And one of the things that people purchase with a guaranteed income, because, you know, there have been dozens of experiments um, around the country. One of the things they purchase is time and time doesn't actually show up on the ledger, right? What shows up is, you know, goods and services, paid down utilities, um, paid off debt, um, paid rent for the month. But the other thing people are able to do is stop a third gig and buy time. And so I think of this um, father in Stockton named Tomas, and he 
was uh, an early recipient of the Guaranteed Income Demonstration in Stockton, California. It was a history-making demonstration that the then Mayor Michael Tubbs launched um, years ago to, to sort of demonstrate what it would look like. So 125 families um, were randomly selected out of different census tracts that were at the median income level and below. Um, and Tomas was one of those people who got a letter in the mail that said, hey, you've been selected for this demonstration. He was skeptical at first, but- Yeah, like, I was gonna say, I'd be like, and this is a scam. Yeah, I'm not you giving was, you my social you security number. You were but... not wrong to be thinking that in today's moment, today's world. Um, and he you know, responded to the letter, became a recipient and $500 a month were, was debited directly into his account. And as that started happening, He's a mechanic and he was able to quit a, a, a gig job he had that he would do on the weekends in order to make ends meet. So one Saturday morning, he took his children to the pool. And as he sat by the pool, dangling his feet and, you know, under the sun, he realized his kids knew how to swim. And that is something he didn't know because he had not been able to spend a leisurely Saturday afternoon with his children before. He was always working. And so what would it mean? for people to have time to invest in their communities, their democracy, whether it be at the level of the PTA or running for office, time to invest in their families, time to invest in themselves, to find a job that is something inspiring to them, to take a risk, to go back to school, like any of the things that people can do when there's a little when there's when there's economic security. Yeah. And that's honestly what you're describing sounds like a fundamental shift from an economy, an economy that's designed to be served by people to mm. an economy that's des designed to serve people. Um, and well said. I would love yes. to have shorter work weeks, you know? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Four day work week. <laughs> yeah. And all uh, of that can happen. Right. I mean, we, I do think we're in a moment right now where, you know, there is workers have agency right now because the response to the pandemic has been um, supportive of families, people are exercising their agency in ways that are hard to understand what's happening right now. Uh, you know, and uh, some of some people are saying, I don't wanna work that job that didn't pencil out. It didn't make sense for me to leave my family, you know, for that $7.25 an hour job in so many states that are still at the federal minimum wage. Um, and so I'm not going to do it. And I think there's something really powerful in that agency and it's complicated. Like we're feeling it across the economy, but the clear answer is that we have to invest more in workers. We have to invest more in families and we have to build that resilience so people can make their own decisions. So what are some of the major obstacles then in doing that in, in investing in workers and families and realizing this vision? Um, and then what are, what do you see as some of the key leverage points for making change? Well, uh, the obstacles are um, large and complicated, right? The obstacles are one, a tax code that rewards wealth and not work. A tax code that rewards, you know, money makes money in this economy. If you are solely reliant upon your hourly wages, you have, they have stayed stagnant for decades, for an entire generation. So one is the tax code, um, that really takes you know money from the bottom and funnels it to the top through all kinds of um complicated measures so one is just writing that um 
wrong. And I think a guaranteed income starts to do that. You both have to tame the top. You know, the wealthy have to pay their fair share in order to pay for, you know, building back better and building for the future. But low income families also have to have money in their pockets. It has to be, um, you know, built more fairly. Uh, so I think that's one of the big barriers. And two is just the political gridlock that we live in. You know, time and time again, when people can vote on expanding the social safety net, on expanding the contract, they do. So if you look at red states in America who have had the ballot, on the ballot, opportunities to increase the minimum wage, to expand Medicaid, to uh, pay, offer paid sick days to, you know, people who work in this country, every, every time they do it in red states, in purple states, in blue states. And yet that doesn't translate to Congress. And there's good reason for that. You know, there are lots of interests, lots of large corporate interests that like the status quo because it is a great place for your money to make money. And so they want to keep the status quo, you know, the same. And so we really are going to have to break that connection in order for democracy to work and Congress to be able to do what it should be doing. Yeah. And I'm not sure we have enough time to get into details on how to break that system. Um, <laughs> unless you have a quick answer. I mean, that'd be great. But uh, I, like you said, it's super complex, uh, but it doesn't mean it's not, it's not the task before us. So in the face of these complex widespread challenges, are there any emerging opportunities, new developments, um, things that give you hope? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, the first few checks, the child tax credit checks, after just two checks, we saw black hunger among black families decrease by a quarter and hunger among Latinx wow. families decrease by a third. Wow. It's breathtaking to realize two checks can have that impact on food scarcity in families today. And yet they do reminding us poverty is indeed a policy choice that we are making in this country. And so the data coming out around these first few child tax credit checks that have hit bank accounts, we've had three now, there's three more to go. And then we're hoping Congress will make this permanent, permanent part of the social contract uh, has just been really impressive as to what it means in people's lives. So that I think is a signal of hope. I think another signal of hope is some of the exciting organizing happening among um, low-wage workers who historically, you know, we've seen a major decline in unions in America. And unions are important because they provide this checks and balances in a system that is really geared toward, um, as you said, you know, the, the business owners and the people who, who make the profits and not just the hourly workers who sort of generate those profits. And so it's important to have that systems of checks and balance in, in to keep capitalism um working for everyone. Uh, and, and as we've seen a major decline in unions that has tracked with uh, the, the decline in wages and stability. And so all that to say, I, I don't know what is next for the American labor movement. I think that's one of the big questions here too, but there are lots of really exciting um, signals there from coworker.org, which is using technology to organize workers in otherwise non-union workplaces 
to uh, United for Respect, which is an organization of retail workers um, across the economy who are demanding things like paid leave and winning, who are demanding, you know, dollar two more in hazard pay and winning, um, and ultimately will be who we thank when there is an increase in the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour or more. I saw my first sign that said $22 an hour federal minimum wage. And I thought, all right, let the stakes keep raising um, because the prices keep raising because the cost of living right. keeps um, being right. raised. So it is, um, it is, it is time that, you know, we, 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 we track um, our demands that our demands be commensurate to what a thriving life uh, would actually look like. Hmm. So those are two of the, the signals I see. That's nice. I, I will say one of the things that gives me hope is the work that you're doing with the Economic Security Project. So I, I want to make sure I give you the opportunity to say a little bit about uh, what that project is and what you do. And yeah, it's so cool. Yeah. So five years ago, I came together with Chris Hughes, who's a Facebook co-founder, and Dorian Warren, who's an activist, uh, veteran activist, who's president of Community Change. And we decided, you know, this idea of a guaranteed income had had its moment in American history. Under President Nixon, there was a bipartisan moment. You know, Dr. King wrote about it in his last book, Where We Go From Here, Chaos or Community, where he was starting to really tackle the questions of poverty, of systemic racism, of racialized capitalism, and, and said a guaranteed minimum income is one of the only paths forward I can see for eliminating poverty. And, and then we get Reagan and we got trickle-down economics and we got neoliberal capitalism that we've really lived through in the last 40 to 50 years where ideas like a guaranteed income were nowhere on the table on, in either party. But as we were discussing the future of automation and it was clear uh, that America is a low-wage nation with very precarious work, ideas like a guaranteed income were back in vogue. The, you know, the universal basic income conversation was happening. So we thought this is a thing that should be explored. This is a thing that has roots in social and economic justice, in racial justice, um, really the vanguard of racial justice movement. You know, the Black Panthers were talking about this idea in their 10-point plan, almost all lost uh, in the conversations that were kind of sparking up in the future of work crowd. And so we thought, let's, let's um, support this early stages of a movement and really support champions who want to build on where the racial and economic justice movements had left off, uh, you know, 40 to 50 years ago. Uh, um, the black women who were organizing around welfare uh, in, in Dr. King's time, and we were pushing Dr. King to look at big, bold ideas like a guaranteed minimum income. Those are the shoulders on who, you know, whose shoulders we stand on today. And so, um, so we launched Economic Security Project. We supported a lot of white papers. We did a lot of research. We looked in Alaska where you actually have a dividend, no strings attached. It's paid out to every resident, man, woman, and child in Alaska. Um, so it's a natural experiment of the last 40 years that really has a lot of important data. Birth weights go up. Uh, you know, People stay in school longer. There's just a number of things that are demonstrable from the dividend that gets paid out annually. Um, and we also uh, were the first uh, investors and supporters of um, the guaranteed income demonstration in Stockton, California, led by Mayor Michael Tubbs. And um, when the pandemic hit, we were ready. We had a great team in place. We had an excellent campaigning organization. Um, 
uh, that was ready to swing into gear at the federal level and um, you know do research, do polling, do communications, do advocacy lobbying around uh, the child tax credit, which really is a guaranteed income for families um, with children. Um, and the, the work that uh, demonstrates what's possible like in Stockton, has, has exploded. So there are now 60 mayors who signed on to Mayors for a Guaranteed Income, started by Mayor Michael Tubbs. We're a proud partner in that work. Uh, and dozens of demonstrations that are springing up around the country. In small towns like Wausau, Wisconsin, and in big cities like LA and Chicago just had their most recent announcement. Um, it's really become a thing that mayors who are close to the economic pain in their cities there is no escaping it when you drive around your city. And they are saying, we need something like a federal guaranteed income. Cities can't solve this. Even states can't solve this. This has to be the federal government. This is the level of idea we need you to be supporting. So I hmm. think the movement has come so far in five years, but we have to we have to win. We have to win concrete policy change and we have to change hearts and minds around these questions of work and worth and around the idea of organizing our economy around doing versus organizing our economy around being and that there's inherent worth in every human being and we can build like that and and we will have a much more prosperous and resilient economy when we do so fantastic why well, I, I think you know i'd hope that this conversation and conversations like this will help to change hearts and minds in a way that can lead toward concrete policy change um, of the kind that you're describing. So thank you for all of your work uh, and thank you for a wonderful conversation. Thank um, you so much. Fun. It was really a pleasure to be here. And thanks for the opportunity to write the chapter in the book. I really appreciated that nudge. Um, and I, I have loved the book. I thought it was a wide ranging conversation that is super relevant today. So thanks for your role Absolutely. in creating that. If, for those of you who are listening who want to learn more about Natalie's work, uh, please check out economicsecurityproject.org. Um, you can find some information there. Um, thanks again. Thank you. Take care.